You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we had a, just another conversation with John Swinton, who's a professor of practical theology and pastoral care at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and he's the founding director of Aberdeen Centre for Spirituality, Health and Disability. You, you might know John from various things. Um, he's He was a mental health nurse and then is so they moved into the area of theology and he's published widely on the intersection really of disability, spirituality, health, and as well as qualitative research, mental health, all of these things. He's written a book on dementia as well as his most recent one called Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of Christians with Mental Health Challenges. So it's no surprise that we talk with John about the intersection of mental health and theology and um, sort of talking about how do we how do we understand that in terms of the language that we use and how the language we use shapes the narrative of kind of how we understand that. Um, so that was super helpful. And then we kind of talked about as well around diagnoses and how to, what sort of, is a diagnosis helpful? Yes. But are there different ways to think about diagnoses in terms of, in terms of he talks about it in terms of thick and thin understandings of um, mental health and mental illness and things like that. So it was, as always, a great conversation. Yeah, it was beautiful. And even that we're on a continuum, all of us are on kind of a continuum of of where we fall on the on the mental health, and it's not it's not like a either linear um, approach either. It's like different for everybody. And so, yeah, going back to seeing people made in the image of God, and not specifically a, a some sort of some sort of diagnosis. And John was wonderful in unpacking these questions, and and he's just got a rich experience too. His new book is is basically trying to reframe how we view mental health and kind of bringing both like the community of, of people and mental health professionals together to kind of kind of see from a similar framework and telling the stories, which is the big piece, mm-hmm. telling the stories of people who are, who are in it, who have mental health illness. And so this is a great conversation and it might whet your appetite and you might think, oh, I want to learn more then we have a great news for you. Uh, John is teaching a course with also with Dan Whitehead, who's the CEO of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. And it's called, the course is called Seeking Sanctuary, Finding Shalom, Love, Community and the Lived Experience of Mental Health Challenges. Here in January, it's a one-week intensive here at Regent College. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. John Swinton and maybe that you might join us for a class here in January. Enjoy our conversation. John, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you. That was nice to meet you. Thank you. (laughs) Glad to have you. Um, Can you tell us, we're going to talk about something that you always talk about, but we're going to talk about, you're going to talk about it with us. So that's different. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about the kind of of mental health and some of the various kind of intersections with that around theology and how we understand that. But do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey and just how you became interested, interested in the intersection of theology and mental health? Yes. Well, my uh, background's in nursing. So before I, I kind of wandered into theology, I was a mental health nurse for 16 years. Well, mm-hmm. I was originally in mental health. Then I retrained in the area of uh, intellectual disability, mm-hmm. what was then called mental handicap. 
or thereabouts. Um, and so all of my kind of formative years was in the areas around mental health and, and disability. And so when in the early 90s I decided to do something different, uh, I uh, decided to go in, in for theology. So I thought at that stage I'd end up as a hospital chaplain. And I did, I did mm. my hospital chaplain, chaplain for a while. Um, because, well, not because, but my father was a, a mental health chaplain. Um, and it's not to say that it's, it's genetic, but it was in the family. Like. <laughs> and so, uh, but when, as soon as I got to university, I knew that I wanted to teach practical theology. And so I finished my degrees and I, I got a job in Glasgow, worked there for a year and then came back up here. And I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. So the reason that I, I, I theologize about um, things like mental health and disabilities because it's always been a part of my life. And most of the questions that I end up asking theologically come out of my own experience and my own story. You know, mm. Things like, I mean to love Jesus when you've forgotten who Jesus is. It's just right. a, a classic question. Somebody that spent time with somebody who lives with dementia. Yeah. What does, yeah. It, what does it mean yeah. to, to know God when you, you've never had language to be able to articulate the way that religious religion does all these questions just come to the fore so that's yeah. that's how i got into it yeah. and that's why i kind of think the way i do yeah well you've written a number of of books as well on mental health and spiritual care and you've written on dementia as well i wonder how like just more broadly and maybe if you want to share specific stories or experiences you can but how is your work as both a nurse and a chaplain like impacted or maybe emerged out of what what you've chosen to write on or or like the different even stories or encounters you've had well my i i did my phd thesis on schizophrenia and christian mm. friendship mm. at that time i was working as a, a mental health chaplain or a community mental health chaplain working with people who were coming out of the institution uh, and into the community. And the government at that point called it community care. But of course, uh, there's no real community for people who are perceived as different and nobody really cares. Mm. Uh, and I <laughs> discovered very quickly that churches were no different. Mm. And then they were equally oh. stigmatized and equally as alienating. So I, think, I began to think, well, well, first of all, why is that? And the answer is quite straightforward. Is Christians are part of the world. Unless they notice things, they get sucked into the same ways of thinking as everybody else does. But also that uh, what struck me more than anything else was the nature of uh, the friendships that Jesus offers to the world. Right. So in John's Gospel, Jesus offers a friendship. He says, I no longer call you servants, now I call you friends. So friendship becomes the essence of discipleship. And it's really interesting because the incarnation is, is all about God, who is considered to be radically different from everybody else, entering into uh, uh, the human form and offering friendships to human beings. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that's a, a, a beautiful model of the way that Christian friendship should be, yeah. not like attracts like, you know, because you know, in its typical Facebook style, uh, a lot of our friends tend to be very similar to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, right. the ones we yeah. don't. Jesus never did that. He always hung around with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, not like reformed tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes, but people who are <laughs> still good about that. Yeah. And so he offers that relationship to people who are marginalized. And that struck me as that, uh, that that's the problem, that the community of the friends of Jesus have forgotten what friendship is like. Mm. And so therefore, the, the, my uh, PhD began to dis- explore what that was. But I kind of formed the foundation for almost everything that, uh, else that I've done. 
in relation to working with marginalised people in age to Christian community, the nature of friendship, the way in which friendship brings healing and reconciliation and mm. uh, builds community. So mm. that's where it came. That's where it came out of, mm-hmm. and uh, as a foundation, and then all my other work on dementia, disability, in the life care has all kind of come from there and stems wow. from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, John, are you are you seeing shifts in how the church is thinking about mental health? Like, so I feel like we are talking about it, more, or maybe it's just the circles I'm in. Maybe maybe I've got it like a skewed thing, but it it feels like people are talking about it more. Churches are talking about it more. There is more of an awareness and all that kind of stuff. Is that actually true, or like? I mean, obviously, we've always got more to do and more to grow and stuff. But have, what have you seen in terms of shifts or kind of developments in terms of? the church's engagement around these issues and things? Yeah, that's a very good question. The answer is, I guess, yes and no. Yeah. So some churches are very good. Some theologies are more easy to work with in relation to mental health than other theologies. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you, yeah, and some churches just simply are are better at it than others. That depends on how you understand mental health, it understands how you understand the the community and, and how you understand what it means to be with one another in difficult times. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of that, a lot of stigmatization, a lot of difficulties, but there's also mm-hmm. positive things. Uh, and one being the, the sanctuary course is, mm. is a good example of the way in which co- congregations can be educated into mm-hmm. thinking differently. Because one of the problems, certainly when I was a, a, a chaplain, and I still know, is people had good intention, mm. but they had no resources. Whereas now mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more resources right people to do that and wherever I go in the world I find people saying why just did this mental course I just did this mental course this course of mental mental health uh, in fact I was uh, I was at a meeting tonight it was we're running a series of uh, science for seminaries science and religion uh, uh, seminars and a guy came up to me and said I'm sick of seeing your face <laughs> I thought, that's nice. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> Turned out he and his wife had to do the sanctuary course twice. Like, yeah. Really. <laughs> so There's nothing cute. else is salvation in this show because the is over. Yeah, right. Yeah. Can I, so, can yeah. I ask you? Oh, yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Positive things, negative things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question around just um, terminology? So we often talk about mental health, but often, obviously there's – Mental health, and that's our emotional health, and it's integrated to our physical health. Is mental health actually the right term? <laughs> and um, then, the, can you talk to us about the the whole, the kind of the continu- the continuum of that, and then mental illness as well? Yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing, yeah, maybe maybe the, the simplest thing to is, is yeah, is the mental health continuum, right? Mm-hmm. So. The way that we frame uh, health and illness within Western cultures, because we have a highly medicalized culture, we tend to look to medicine for our models of health. And medicine, of course, is there to fix and mend us. That's why why we have medicine as much as anything else. Mm. And so the model of health that comes out of medicine and psychiatry uh, is the absence of illness. And so you get sick. And then uh, medics use their medical technology to try to get rid of whatever broken bit or, or damaged bit there is, and move you towards health, which is essentially the absence of illness or as close as you can manage to get. Mm-hmm. But of course, if you're somebody who, for example, lives with rheumatoid arthritis or enduring schizophrenia, 
then you're never going to get better in that sense. Mm -hmm. So you're always going to be ill. And if you Mm -hmm. can imagine what it's like always to be ill, to be perceived as ill by other people, to be perceived as ill yourself, it really narrows your life possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the mental health continuum suggests quite rightly that actually mental health runs along a, a continuum. So yes, there are people who live have severe mental health challenges uh, um, at, uh, along one end of the continuum, but at the other end of the continuum uh, is, uh, is uh, but the other end of the continuum is not discontinuous with that because mm-hmm. we're all on that from sometimes yeah. somewhere. So there's a, it's a constant movement backwards and forwards along the continuum, and health being the ability to do your best and be your best self, if you like, hmm. uh, at that particular moment in time. So even if you're at the, at the right-hand side, for want of a better way of putting it, if you're going through a really difficult mental health uh, uh, situation, you can still find health in the midst of that situation. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I would understand that theologically is, is by using the concept of uh, shalom. And that, that, that I've written a bit about that over, mm-hmm. over the years. Because shalom is the closest word that we have for health in the Bible. Because mm-hmm. the Bible doesn't think about health in terms of the absence of illness. It's the presence of God. Mm-hmm. So shalom is always peace. Peace with this big peace. Peace with creation. Peace with one another. Peace with God. Uh, and so to be healthy is to be entered into God's shalom in that way. But sitting at the heart of that peace is to be in right relationship with God. So to enter God's shalom, to be healthy mm-hmm. mentally or physically, is to be in right relationship with God. So therefore, even if you're at the far end of the uh, mental health continuum, you can be really healthy. Yeah. But likewise, you can be at the opposite end where you're you know, pretty well enjoying life. If you lose sight of who Jesus is, then you're unhealthy. Hmm. Uh, and so the continuum understood within that kind of simple theological framework helps us to understand that um, a, people with mental health challenges are exactly the same as us. We're all hmm. moving along that to, in different ways. And B, that the task of the church is to help people to hold on to Jesus hmm. in the midst of the difficulties that they have. So the mental health professions have a very important job to do, a clinical job yeah. to do, but the church has a very important healing job to do. And by healing, I don't mean getting rid of things. I mean healing by connection. Yeah, I wonder with that, John, as you as a as a mental health professional yourself, um, because there there are different thoughts around this. But how like how did what how do you see your role as caring for people's mental health? Like, what would be the goal uh, for you if you were? I mean, obviously there are an array of of different things that people come to mental health professionals for, but if, if the idea is shalom, like how do you, and, and the understanding is like, there is some degree of where people want to, I don't, I don't know what it means, like get better or whatever, whatever that looks like. How do you see your role or the goal as a, as a, as a mental health professional? Well, my sense would be that there's kind of like these two models of, of, of health that run along uh, parallel to one another. Now, my point is not that mental health professionals don't think about broader issues, because the mm-hmm. whole idea of the recovery model that's very, very prevalent within certainly service users' ways of thinking about things it means that you find the best of who you are, mm-hmm. whatever you are there. So it's not that these two, you know, one's clinical and one's personal. But the only way that you can really work well to bring about health and healing is when these two models of health, these two ways of delivering mental mm-hmm. health care become one. 
So there has to be an ongoing conversation. There has to be a collaboration between professional services mm. and that which the church brings. That's not an easy conversation for either party, but I think mm-hmm. that's the only way that it, it can really work yeah. ultimately because people do need clinical care. They do need the expertise for mental health, but they all absolutely do need mm. that <clears throat> theological this um, healing dynamic in yeah. their lives. Yeah. I distress again when I say healing dynamic. I don't mean praying to get rid of things. Right. I mean holding on to God yeah. in a way that, that sustains who you are and sustains your relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with with that, one of the things you've talked about, and I think maybe is important to touch on, and you you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but is the actual specific language when we when we talk about mental health, and I, I wonder if you want to elaborate this on this more of like specifically around maybe it, it could be depression, it could be schizophrenia or bipolar, like when we talk about use language of like battling with schizophrenia or wrestling with bipolar, like. Is that helpful? Like, if it's not, what other language would you use? Like, what, what, and what this does when we, when we talk about it in this way, like, what kind of narrative, I, I guess, it even paints? That's a good, it's a very good question. So many years ago, um, there was an a English literary scholar called Susan Sontag who wrote a book called Illnesses Metaphor. And it came out of her own experience as a breast cancer survivor whereby she told somebody that she had a breast cancer uh, and they described it as a, a dirty condition. And she was startled by this, mm. that people would think that way about cancer. So she began to look at it uh, and she began to see that uh, very often when it comes to cancer, people use militaristic metaphors to fight battle, to mm. fight cancer, the enemy within. And so, and so you're expected to battle it and to fight your way through. And she pointed out that some people just don't want to do that. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps other metaphors are more important, like um, finding the purpose or whatever way you want to, 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 to do that, like growing, even mm-hmm. in the midst of, of, of uh, that thing. And she did the same things with AIDS, because AIDS is, is a, a similar thing, surrounded by metaphors. And it's the same thing in mental, mental health. So if you have schizophrenia, suddenly you become a schizophrenic. Now, what is that? Is it like a Spaniard? Is it like a Vancouverite? Mm. A space person? Mm. It's ridiculous. But as soon as you talk, use that language to talk about somebody, you alienate them. You push them yeah. away and they become not like you. And as soon as somebody's not like you, then the chances of you ever being, becoming friends with them is never. But worse than that, the chances of you participating implicitly or explicitly in abuse is yeah. always there because you'll ignore things. Mm-hmm. And so the language we use around mental health and the metaphors that we use around the mental health are really, really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, fighting and battling, the way I would think about it is that if somebody wants to use that language about their own experience, then that's what they should do. So it's not, mm-hmm. it's not for me to be the language police and tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. But I would point out that for other people who maybe want to look at it differently, be careful because you mm-hmm. put a huge pressure on somebody who's going through a really difficult situation. If you're saying, come on, you've got to battle that, that depression. Come on, you've got to pull your socks up or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use there. Mm. And people are just exhausted. Mm. They just want, want to help. And you heaping coals on them, ultimately blaming them for it implicitly, yeah. doesn't help. Yeah. So I think you've always got to be very careful about the language you use about anybody who's ill physically yeah. or mentally. But certainly because of the highly stigmatized nature of mental health, mm. uh, challenges you've got to be very careful yeah yeah oh, it's so helpful to hear too even specifically with schizophrenia or depression or any 
whatever diagnosis that, that when somebody gets diagnosed with that, that, you, that even, especially for the church, um, but for people in general, like these people, this person, whoever they are, is so much more than just their, their diagnostic, like their name, yeah. their story. Like, and if it, I feel like sometimes when you hear something about somebody, when like a label gets put on them, anything, but specifically with mental health, it's like you start to see them through that lens. So I don't know. How do you, I mean, obviously people don't like people have free will to share with whatever they, whatever they want to share. Like if they want to share, this is what they're struggling with or wrestling with. But I guess, how do you, how do you like, how do I, how do I frame this question? How do you see people in a way that isn't through just one, one lens? Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's, an, that's, an, that's an easy question. Uh, you call them by their name. <laughs> Mm. Right. And so as soon as you call somebody by their name, then you are entering into a particular kind of relationship with them. Right. If you think about them only in terms of their diagnosis, then you're entering into a particular type of relationship with them. Yep. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you name somebody, as soon as you, 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 you mm-hmm. know, I call you Nicholas and I call you Claire, then I, 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 it's, it's just different. If, if I'm thinking in my mind, oh man, Nicholas is schizophrenia, I better be careful here and better mm-hmm. not touch this. Mm-hmm. Then I, I create, a, a, I feel like an I it relationship with you. Mm-hmm. But if I call you by your name, it's an I thou relationship totally. because I see you as a human being. Yeah. There may be other parts to your life, and part of that might be schizophrenia or depression, bipolar disorder. Um, but I'm beginning in a different place. I'm beginning with you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. That's I, I do agree with you. It's an easy question, but I think it's so important more and more in this day and age where different labels Definitely. get put on different people mm-hmm. that we actually address this. That and and I think that's what hopefully the church and the Christian faith has to offer is that people are first and foremost people, humans created Absolutely. in the image of God, and that is what's what's central, the identity piece there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, when, you, mental health diagnoses are really, really important for mental health professionals. It certainly enables them to do their healing task and it enables them to, 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 to help people to understand what's going on with them. So it's not it's not the diagnostic label that's the problem. It's the problem is when we people take it out of that context and use it like this, you know, in a, in a day-to-day conversation. So... If you have influenza, people don't call you the flu. Right. But if you have schizophrenia, then people call you schizophrenia. It becomes mm-hmm. a, it becomes a you disease mm. rather yeah. than. And even if, even some of the ways that people explain things, like you know, it's it's a genetic condition. Well, mm. yes, that explains some things, but it makes it even more difficult for other people totally. because it means it's part of who you are. Right. right. Yeah. It's not just it's not just a, a headache. Yeah. It's, it's something that's built into who you are and that mm-hmm. causes all sorts of difficulties for people to, to process. Yeah. 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 That's helpful. And so, yeah, that you've sort of, you've, you've touched on this, this sort of, you know, recognizing the humanity of another person and calling someone by their name kind of helps us create this bigger narrative around mental health and people. You, you talk a little, a little bit about like a thin view and a thick view of mental health. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean by that? Well, it kind of runs along the, the, the kind of conversation we're having just now. So the, the idea of thick and thin descriptions of things comes from uh, 
Clifford Gears, who's a, a social anthropologist who does a lot of ethnographic work. And he talks about the way in which we describe things as being profoundly important. So you can have a thin description of something like a wink. So a thin description of a wink is you simply use the muscles and sinews in your face to close your eyelids and to open it again. But of course, that's true. So it is a description, it's not inaccurate. Mm -hmm. But a wink can be mischievous, it can be lustful, it can be uh, aggressive. Mm. There's a whole range of meaning and feeling around that. If you miss out on that, you can't understand what it is. The thin description remains accurate, but you can't understand what it is in all of its fullness. Mm -hmm. So the idea of of thick and thin descriptions is if a thick description means you take into into, uh, consideration the context, the experiences, the feelings, the emotions, they, and so on that go with that. And so that applies to something like a diagnosis, which will, you know, if you look at the, the way that diagnoses are, are written in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Dis- Mental Disorders, it's a little catchy little title, um, <laughs> you know, they give a list of symptoms, that, which does tell you something about what this person is going through. But then you have a conversation with somebody who's going through that, and they'll tell you about the family. They'll tell you about their future. They'll tell you about the possibilities that they have or the possibilities they no longer have. They'll tell you about broken relationships with human beings, with God, and you have a huge picture there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thin description in DSM is inappropriate, but it's, it's, it, it still makes sense, but it just doesn't give you that bigger sense. And yeah. that's why I think is you've got to be careful. The church has to be careful where it gets its descriptions of mental yeah. health from. The yeah. temptation is simply to go to go to psychiatry or psychology and to take these descriptions and say, oh, now we understand what it is. But of course you don't until you have that big picture. Yeah, maybe maybe because you went there with specifically for those who don't know the DSM five, what like what is that? What and you kind of actually described like why is it helpful? But then I guess what are some of your hesitations around it? And and also yeah. are, are there other diagnostic <laughs> tools too? Yeah, the, the DSM-5, which is, the, as I say, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, is a series of criterion that are pulled together by psychiatrists to explain different experiences of mental health challenges. And so for uh, depression or eating disorders or bipolar disorder or personality disorder, you have a list of things in there that the psychiatrist can look at uh, place your symptoms against and then come to a, a diagnosis. Mm. So it's intended to, 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 to help physicians to, to make a diagnosis. It is used widely in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, in Europe, the, the uh, World Health Organization, uh, ICD-10 or S11 now, is used. So there's a kind of difference across the, the two continents. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, all of these manuals are intended to do that. And as I say, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's just probably not quite enough to give you enough mm. information to enable you to, to get to the place where that's the thick description, mm. which gives you a, a, a broader range of options, uh, becomes comes to the fore. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. 
If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them, share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. I wonder if you could just give an example or, or from, from your work, like say like depression. What would be a, a thin view of depression? And then what would be a thick view or understanding of it? So I think the, a thin uh, view of depression was it's um, a chemical imbalance and just take your medication. You don't get much thinner than that, but that, that, that's, that, <laughs> that's definitely the way that, that some people frame it. Like, that may be a slight caricature, but you get, you get the idea. Yeah. A strict view of depression would be something like, um, as one woman des- described it to me, uh, depression is like tumbling into a dark, deep abyss. And when I'm down at the bottom, I look up, and sometimes I can see light, sometimes I can't see light. Mm. But the walls of the abyss are, are like... Uh, lying with some slippery substance that I can't really get any way I can get out of that. And I look up, can't see anything. And I can only sit there and wait for uh, rescue. Mm. And by waiting for rescue, she means not just that somebody sits down and jumps down and sits beside her, because sometimes we think, well, the best thing to do is accompany somebody to sit beside them, which is, is a good thing. What she meant was medication. She couldn't get out of that pit by herself, so she needed help, and the help that she wanted was... People beside her, yes, but also medication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually wanted both, and that's the important thing. It's not one or the other, she wanted both. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's, a, that's, that's a, an example of a thick description, which mm-hmm. then gives you a broader range of possibilities. So a thin description would say, well, just take your medication. A thick description is, is a, this is a really difficult situation. We need people and we need medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, kind of jumping off the sort of... Yeah, maybe off from depression as well, but sort of um, how we understand sa- understand sadness and suffering, and that, and you sort of talk about that, you know, how that the interplay between that and joy. Do you want to how how do we how is suffering and sadness not necessarily the opposite of joy? But can you talk to us about about that? Well, one of the interesting things that the people, that I, some of the people I spoke to in relation to the piece of research you, you're talking about, referring to. Mm-hmm is that they didn't consider um, uh, depression to be sadness. Mm, right. So sadness, when, as one person put it, uh, is, some, is, a, is, a, is an emotion that I long to have. Yeah, yeah. What I mean by that is that uh, with sadness, you kind of mm. know what it feels like. Yeah. You kind of know usually where it comes from and you know what land. Whereas with depression, 
you have none of these things. Yeah. It's simply there. <clears throat> and it's not it's not that it's uh, uh, you feel depressed because mm. depression is a complete extraction of all feeling. Yeah. So you know, yeah. we, we say, I, I feel sad, so I know what you mean. I feel depressed, so I know what you mean. But it's, mm. it's, it's, it's almost like anti-feeling that people yeah. go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, again, being careful about the, our language, because we use it, like, the, the, the language of depression so frequently yeah. that mm-hmm. it, becomes, it becomes thinned out in that mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know what you feel like. I feel sad. I've been so here for I know what you feel like when you're depressed. It's just that multiplied by 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, it's not when you listen to, to people. Um, but one of the problems that uh, some people encountered was the push on happiness in uh, religious communities, particularly in the context of worship, where it seems that seemed to be for some people that happiness was equated with faithfulness. So the mm. happier you are, the closer mm. you are to God. The less wow. happy you are, the, the less close you are to God. Yeah. Um, which is a profound uh, theological mistake, because if you look at the way in which Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, he doesn't mention happiness. No. So happiness mm-hmm. is an emotion that comes and goes. We like it, nothing wrong with that. But he doesn't talk about happiness as the fruit of the spirit. Um, he talks about joy as the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And joy, if you look at the if you do a, a kind of like a word search of, of joy in the New Testament, it, 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 it's to do with um, finding your hope in Jesus even in the midst of suffering. So joy includes suffering. It also mm-hmm. includes happiness. It also includes well-being, all of these things but it includes suffering. For the joy of Jesus, Paul does all the things that, that, he, that, he, that he does. Right. And he certainly wasn't uh, uh, immune to suffering. Mm-hmm. So shifting that, that idea from happiness to joy as central to our, our faith and our faith lives, I think is very helpful because it just mm-hmm. helps us to incorporate of think is to incorporate the book of Psalms into our lives. Yeah, right. You know, totally. The idea that lamentation <laughs> and lamentations, is, uh, yeah, that's right. it's actually part of, of uh, you know the spiritual life. Yeah, yeah. John, one of the things I've heard you talk about is being able to hold uh, one another's joy or being able to hold uh, joy for for one another. And I think in thinking of the context of specifically our our worship gatherings and services. Um, but then also the friendships and relationships we have. I guess, can you maybe flesh that out a little bit of what what that would look like to hold someone else's joy in the midst of their their suffering? Well, the idea of holding joy or anything else or another is the essence of the body of Christ. Hmm. Because the body of Christ is all about uh, difference. It's all about, I can't do this, but you can do this, and I can't do this without you. It's all about Mm -hmm. interconnection. It's all about difference. It's all about holding one another in the various states that that we end up in. in. So the idea of holding joy for one another comes conceptually from that that idea of the interconnectivity of the Mm -hmm. body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, In practical terms, the thing that the story that was most profound to me on that was one lady I spoke to who, uh, lived with depression and went to what she described as a happy clappy church and encountered the kind of issues that we are that we've been talking about previously mm-hmm. and she she said like uh, she would be in the middle of the service of worship and she'd be miserable and everybody would be happy and she'd be miserable like mm-hmm. um and she valued interesting that the, t- the times when the worship leader would 
do some lamentation because she, she could kind of identify with that. Mm. But what she said was really interesting. She said, um, but I don't want uh, uh, everybody else not to be happy. I want you to continue to be happy. I want you to continue to be joyful. I want you to continue to raise your hands and worship. So, um, but and, and I want you to hold that joy for me when mm. I can. Mm-hmm. And she says, you, you communicate that just by, by allowing me that space to be sad. By Sometimes people would put a hand on her shoulder or whatever it was, making sure she felt physically and psychologically part of that that that, that community. And she mm-hmm. was just saying, hold that for me. I'll, I'll pick it up later, but mm-hmm. hold it for me just now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And it's, we, we often as well, there's that thing of um, bo- both sides of the joy and lament in worship gatherings is, you know, so someone will be like, well, I'm I'm not joyful at the moment, so I want to lament. But at the same time, some people be like, I don't want to lament. I, I feel, I actually do feel like genuinely happy and joyful. So, And so therefore I don't want to be, you know, I, I, we need to be able to hold both, right? So, and if even if I'm not feeling the thing that we're singing about right now, someone mm-hmm. in someone is either on the joy or sorrow kind of side of things. So being able to kind of hold it both for one another and even if I'm not yeah. feeling it, acknowledging that, Probably someone, if they're not in this room, there is somewhere in the global body of Christ who is feeling the other thing that I don't feel right now. You know, like, yeah. Exactly. Um, but that, that's that, that's not something that's unique to mental health. No. Everybody feels like that. I mean, totally. you're, you're tired. You're, you're in church. You feel like that. It may, it may be more difficult if you're feeling uh, in a particular state of mind. But the key thing, I think, is for preachers and teachers to be mm-hmm. aware of the diversity of the emotions and feelings that they're going to be within the body of Christ, yeah, and make sure that to as great to as great as extent as you can that you're inclusive in your worship, that mm-hmm. you that you recognise, allow people to be sad, and you're not forcing people to be something that they're not, and not worse than that, you're not forcing them to take on a spirituality that they don't really feel. Because right. it's easy for people to stand and go, "Hey, I hope that's just fantastic," but if you don't really feel it, and if you're be- beginning to mimic your spirituality. And that causes all sorts of difficulties on totally. top of the difficulties you've already got. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. John, I was talking with Claire before you came on. And just from what I've read from some of your books and listened from from you, I've, it, it, it seems like in some sense you're you're trying to do a little bit of deconstruction and reconstruction. While at the same time, and I don't, I don't know if this is actually right or not. I don't know my history as well, so I'm just going to throw this out there. But almost redeem or or um, bring back some of what originally started within psychology and mental health, and even medical fields in general, is like caring about people holistically. Um, and not just treating people as compartmentalized or simply as diagnostics or just trying trying to fix. Um, I, I'm thinking even like more broadly within the medical field, even of treating people as more whole whole people rather than just like compartmentalized. Do you feel that at all in in your work? Maybe, and I don't know how much history you've you've delved into this, but I, that's just what 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 I sense. No, that, that would be accurate. I mean, I don't think I've consciously done that, but I think that I, have, that I have done that. And I think uh, one of the things that I have consciously done is try to push people, um, kind of push psychiatry back to its roots in soul care. 
because that's, yeah. that's really what the heart of psychiatry is, is to care for the soul and, as you put it, to, to care for the whole person. So it's mm. looking at the way in which um, uh, psychiatry, psychology, uh, and the practices of the church can come together in mm. all of the flawedness, because the church's practices are equally as flawed. So it's right. not like an anti-psychiatry in any sense, because both sides of the, the conversation have difficulties. Um, but to find a way of, of, of them coming together to have conversations that will change the practices of both. Yeah. Uh, and the only way I think that you can do that is by listening to the stories of people living with mental health challenges mm. and allowing mm. that perspective to shine fresh light on both sides of the conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. that's so neat. And that's what you've you've done in your your most recent book. In the in the little that I've delved into it, so John, we um we were talking about how you're basically a Vancouverite with you know Scottish accent these That's days. Right. You know, you just basically just here all the time. But you will be back in January here in Vancouver, uh-huh. teaching a course at Regent College. Do you want to tell us yes. tell us give us a little bit of a sense of that? I mean, I'm guessing it's going to be a little bit like what we're talking about. What are you excited about? What are you hoping for for that for that course? And yeah, yeah anything no, you want to say about that? <laughs> What am I excited? No, I'm really looking forward to it, actually. I'm working with, um, I'm doing the course with Dan Whitehead, who's the CEO of um, uh, Sanctuary Ministries, as, as some people will know. So the object is to, well, I'm a practical theologian, like, so practical theology tries to bring together the theology of the church and the practices of the church mm. uh, in combination with what goes on in the world and see what theology looks like. So, you know, um, you believe in the Trinity, uh, so what? So what? What's it look like? Not quite. Yes. <laughs> My systematic colleagues will be having yeah. their... Oh, they're not dead yet, so they won't be returning their graves. So Dan's going to bring his expertise with sanctuary. I'm going to bring my expertise as a theologian and as a, a, a mental health practitioner, a former mental health practitioner, around key issues in relation to mental health with a view to understanding these issues theologically, i.e., who is God in the midst of this? How do we understand God and human beings in the face of uh, hearing voices or in the mm. face of the, the the huge elation of bipolar disorder when people meet God in fresh new ways? What does that mean? Um, but we're also going to get at the end of that day to, to come back and say, so what do we do? Mm. So it's what does it mean and what do we do? And so we're, we're all together for five days, so I think it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, a, it'll be a good time. Um, working through these issues, complicated yeah. issues. But yeah, I think we'll, laugh. we'll have a bit of a laugh as well. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. bound to have a bit of a laugh. Yeah, you got to have yeah. a bit of a laugh. Um, what sort of person? What sort of person would t- should take the course? Do you think? Like who's, who's any human being? Any <laughs> great <laughs> answer with a name. Any human being with a name, right? <laughs> so that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, people, obviously, people who are interested in, in mental health, uh, mm-hmm. people who are maybe going through mental health issues themselves, people yeah. who want to improve the practice of the church, or even mental health professions that just want to have a different dimension to take back to their work in a clinical context. Mm-hmm. So I think it's any of these groups and all of these yeah. groups and probably more would yeah. be both welcome and, and hopefully would enjoy it. Yeah, great. Well, John, we're looking forward to having you back mm-hmm. yes, on the nice. Regent soil. And we'll, um, yeah, thanks so much for your time today and thanks for unpacking all these things and going with our questions that you hadn't seen. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> like a pro. That's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much, John. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.